0: Hello everyone, it's January 8th, 2019, so this week we're talking about Osiris-Rex, New Horizons, and the Sea Dragon that might have been. Alas, it was to never be, but one never knows. But I do know, right now, lift off. And we have cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 192 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm
1: Dennis.
0: So we have a nice big show coming up. Once again, we got an interview about Sea Dragon.
2: Well, uh, Data Relay.
0: Data relay about Sea Dragon. You're right. I mean, we it's still kind of an interview. Yeah, well, whatever. We have someone coming to talk with us, uh, Valentin Frank, obviously. I'm sure that's already spoiled in the podcast notes. So I guess we maybe should just jump right into it and forego the sous vide talk, even though you are currently sous vide, <laughs> sous voiding. Uh, I don't know. Sous voiding. The- yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
1: I think our listeners at home can just always assume there's going to be sous vide going on.
0: You're currently cooking a whole turkey, right?
2: Or... No, just a turkey breast.
0: Oh, okay, just a turkey breast. <laughs>
2: yeah, I've, last time I did, last time I bought a set of turkey breasts, I cooked one and froze one.
0: Now, is it still called cooking, or is yeah. it, or do you use some other? Okay, no, it's cooking. I, I it's like sous
2: vide. Yeah, sous vide.
0: Because sous videing doesn't sound right. Sewing
2: Yeah, I'm, su- I'm suing vide some some <laughs> turkey.
0: <laughs> so yeah let's just jump into it here let's uh do this week in spaceflight history and we have a bunch of winners it looks like well not a bunch but we got more than a couple so. yeah a
2: decent mm-hmm. number of winners uh hz science Chairboy, mark carper andrew jones and jason freeson the clue from last week was we didn't forget about you so this week in spaceflight history is the 9th of January, 1990. It was the launch of STS-32. So, you know, there are so many shuttle missions that I could just do shuttle missions forever uh, in this week SF. But STS-32 uh, seems pretty charming to me. So uh, first off, there are a couple of pretty cool, unique features of this launch. Uh, at the time, it was the longest duration shuttle mission of all time. Uh, it was also only the third night landing in the program which is pretty awesome considering this you know 32, but it's actually 1990, right? So this is some uh, non-continuous num- mission numbering going on here. Um, it was also the first use of MLP-3 since Apollo. So that's the the platform that sits on top of the crawler, right? And uh, not only was ML-3P looking brand new and shiny, but so was Pad 39A, um, which hadn't been used for four years. Um, they, I don't know if they specifically took time off to upgrade it or if they just happen to have the time on their hands. But uh, like I said, yeah, it was the first use it in four years. Uh, they improved a bunch of stuff, but notably they improved the egress system. They also improved uh, fuel loading and uh, adding some uh, debris filters. Um, and they upgraded some of the service umbilicals so they could actually provide heat to the solid rocket boosters. So STS-32 had two main... Objectives: The first was to deploy Syncom Four uh, F Five, which is also known as Sat Five, or maybe a Lea LeaSat Five. Um, it was a military observation satellite. But what's really cool is that it was spin stabilized, but it was so big that it couldn't fit vertically in the payload base. So most of the time, when you see spin stabilized satellites being deployed from shuttle. Um, they fit vertically, and they they'll actually start spinning sometimes before they're released. Um, they'll spin them up, and then kind of pop them out, and they'll float upwards while spinning with the spinning along the axis that they're leaving the shuttle on. But uh, Leosat Five was so huge that it actually needed to sit with its spin axis parallel to shuttle's uh, nose tail axis, if that makes sense. Um, so. To eject it, they couldn't just spin it up in the bay. They needed to actually release it and spin it at the same time. And this resulted um, in a Frisbee deployment. Um, in the show notes, I've got a video um, showing, I think, Leosat 4. But it's the, it's the same thing. Um, basically, they have one spring that not only spins it up but also ejects it from the bay, which is which is pretty cool. So it gets flung out like a like a frisbee, and then the uh, the video that I linked also includes footage of it beginning its deployment because the LeaSats had a a spun-up platform and a de-spun platform. And the de-spun platform was what actually uh, talked down to space, and the spun-up platform was what uh, had the solar panels on it. So they kind of do a little bit of work preparing to de-spin the the stabilized platform. Uh, So once they get uh, LeaSat 5 out of the way... Um, they went and picked up uh, LDEF, the long duration exposure facility, and this is what the clue refers to. So LDEF uh, was launched in 1984 uh, by Challenger on STS-41C, and the intention was for it to be picked up the next year, uh, 11 months later. And then they thought, okay, so we'll do some, you know, some long duration experiments. We'll bring it back down. We'll analyze our experiments and then, you know, we'll have a chance to refly this thing. And they said, you know, perhaps we'll fly it every, you know, every other year, every year and a half or so, which would be pretty cool. But there were um, some scheduling issues um, and then the Challenger disaster happened, which um, presented even more scheduling issues. And LDEF basically got abandoned. It was on orbit for sixty-nine months, Um, and at one point they actually didn't have a recovery date plan. They call it an indefinite delay. And what's what's really cool is, uh, well, so the reason that they ended up having to go get it is because its orbit decay. There was uh, a period of of solar activity. Um, that puffed up the upper atmosphere and basically began to deorbit this thing. And so when they went and picked it up, it was down to 325 kilometers. And so this thing is getting ready to fall out of the sky. Um, but one of the really cool side effects of it being abandoned for so long, is not only did we get really, really valuable long-term data on some of these exposure uh, experiments, but also um, instead of reflying the the vehicle, they actually... Uh, considered the structure itself to be an experiment. Um, and so they actually studied the vehicle, you know the, the chassis that all the experiments were mounted on. So I, I did a little bit of looking. I couldn't find any really good dimensions while I was doing the research for this. Um, but uh, suffice it to say it's the size of a school bus. Um, it's a 12-sided prism that almost completely takes up the interior uh, of, of the payload bay in, in shuttle. This thing is really cool. So it's got 12 sides with, I think, four or five. I think it actually varies uh, number of experiments on each face, um, as well as experiments on each end. And it's intended to be as inert as possible. There were definitely moving parts, but the the environment is supposed to be as clean as possible, as representative of, of low Earth orbit. So um, there was no propulsion, and they didn't even have... Uh, solar arrays on this thing, and and so there was no data downlinking. Um, not that that has anything to do with the environment, but um, you know the outside of this thing was just crammed full of experiments. I'm sure they could have uh, fit some solar arrays on if they wanted to, but there, there's no need. You know the thing can be pretty pretty self-contained. So without having pointing jets or you know any sort of RCS system. How do you keep this thing stable? It was actually gravity gradient stabilized, um, which we've talked about a little bit in the past. Um, Basically, um, we think about low Earth orbit as being a zero G environment. But in fact, uh, there is gravity. In fact, there's like, uh, you know, 0.8 G's or something like it's it's almost it's almost the same amount of gravity uh, as at the surface of the Earth. And that's really important because the gravity continues to uh, to reduce in strength as you go away from the center of the Earth. Like, this is obvious. But what that means is that even a small spaceship in orbit experiences more gravity on the side that's closer to the Earth's surface than on the side that's pointing towards the stars. And so if you have a, a vehicle that's this big, right, it's long enough... Um, it's got a high aspect ratio, so it's, it's longer than it is wide. It, with this high aspect ratio, you can actually stick it pointing straight out from the Earth, and one end will experience more gravity and the other end will experience less gravity. And it's enough to actually keep it uh, pointing uh, away from the Earth. So not in an absolute uh, orientation relative to the sun or relative to the stars, but an absolute orientation relative to the Earth's surface that's directly below it.
1: It sounds like this is the same fundamental principle for why the moon's tidally locked. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. It's tidal locking. Yeah,
2: exactly.
0: And uh, just so you know, I found the numbers here on that aspect ratio. Uh, It's 9.1 meters by 4.3 meters. So that's almost like 30 feet, I think. Yeah. Super, wow,
2: I mean, it's it's a school bus.
0: It, yeah, I was gonna say, <laughs> school bus is literally yep. a school bus. Yeah.
2: <laughs> so what's what's really cool is that um, not only did they entrust this thing to the I'm trying to think of a poetic phrase uh, to the you know the relentless fist of gravity or something like that <laughs> they also had some dampers inside um, magnetic and also viscous dampers to help make sure that you know once they released it there was going to be some movement they wanted to make sure that it didn't they didn't get jostled out of the out of the correct rotational period so, Uh, What experiments were on board? Well, mostly, as the name suggests, they were exposure experiments. And in fact, most of these were specifically getting ready for Space Station Liberty, which never got built, but basically turned into the International Space Station. Um, If you're not familiar with Space Station Liberty, go look it up because some of the photos are pretty cool. or Some of the artistic renderings are pretty cool. Instead of having a single stack, it was a double stack uh, Space Station, which is pretty cool. Um, So there were materials, coatings, and thermal systems that were being tested. Power and spacecraft propulsion actually was tested. Um, I I don't know exactly what those experiments were, but, you know, it's the materials, not the mechanics. Um, There were optical fibers and pure crystals, which were intended for use in electronics, Um, There were full-blown electronics and optics. Actually, one of the optic experiments was really important because it showed a certain type of paint that was in common use in space at that time actually would uh, off-gas in a weird way that would actually stain optic glass. Um, And so, you know, this particular experiment changed the way that we paint spacecraft. And then also, you know, I'm a biology guy uh they had tomato seeds and bacterial spores also being exposed and the tomato seeds they um distributed to school children and so they you know they did some experiments it turns out that these space exposed seeds uh germinated faster and actually grew quicker uh than non-exposed seeds. It's pretty cool.
0: Why would that be?
2: I don't know. I have no idea. Also the, huh. the seeds actually ended up coming back to Earth more porous than they were when they left. Yeah I don't I, I really don't know. Um obviously seeds were not designed to go float around in, in a vacuum. Uh-huh. So maybe they thought that it was just a really long winter. Who knows? But you remember uh one of our winners was Chairboy, long friend of the show. He actually oh gosh, I'm so jealous um he actually was gifted some of the tomato seeds from LDEF as a child uh and and gr- his family grew them in their garden uh the hope was that we were going to get a bunch of mutations back in fact um one of the news outlets actually kind of went crazy and said oh you know some of these could be poisonous it's like <laughs> yeah i mean yeah technically but uh Chair Boyd and his family did not have any uh visual mutations i'm sure they had non Non-visible mutations, but nothing that affected the phenotype in a noticeable way. Oh, so cool! <laughs> that
1: is wild. <laughs>
2: he he says he doesn't have any photos, which I'm I'm bummed about. So aside from exposure experiments, there are actually some uh, low G experiments. One I know had to do with crystal growth. I don't know what the other ones were. And then, like I said, uh, there was no telemetry from the vehicle, um, no you know real pointing ability. But that doesn't mean that it was static, right? It doesn't mean that this was a dead spacecraft. There were doors that opened after it released, and there were doors that actually closed like a year after uh, experiments began. Um, There were lots of tape recorders uh, recording data. As a part of that, there were a lot of little batteries all over the place. And what's really interesting is that uh, the grapple fixture actually had a communications terminal built in so that Uh, Shuttle could tell LDEF when it was letting go, and then LDEF—the only thing, the only electronics that were native to um, LDEF—was this distribution network where there was a computer that went, "Okay, uh, we're free floating," and then it would go and tell all the experiments that needed to know that it was free floating that they were you know that their timers had started basically so there you go that's uh that's this week in spaceflight history
0: so what is our clue for next week then
2: so next week in 2006 the clue is just nine hours
0: just nine hours in 2006 all right if you think you know what that is in reference to give us a tweet with the hashtag this week sf and good luck <laughs> new horizon rings in the new year this close approach to Ultima Thule? Did I say it right? Actually, do you, do you mind
2: if we call it Moo69? Its actual name is Moo69. Ultima Thule is has not been actually being like that's not an official name and iau is actually highly unlikely to approve it as its official name
0: okay so Mu 69 so right now we don't i mean we've had the closest approach but we don't know too much more yet right because we have a bunch of data that's going to take 20 months to back isn't that awesome (laughs) that's crazy yeah so quick
2: timeline uh december 30th I believe was the last trajectory adjustment, well, not a trajectory adjustment, but that timeline adjustment I actually bumped it by like two seconds, uh, you know, as we um, identified these orbits better and better and understood exactly how close the vehicle was to the uh, Kuiper Belt object, you know, you, you can dial these things in, but two seconds seems like a heck of a lot of time when you're zipping past something this fast. Mm-hmm. So anyway, that was December 30th. Closest approach happened at 12.33 a.m. Eastern Time, New Year's Day. David, like you said, uh, 7 gigabytes of data that will take 20 months to get back home. Um, And then the first time we heard back from uh, the, the spacecraft... Um, was at 10.29 a.m. Eastern time. It was just a quick health burst, just like saying, hi, I'm alive, I'm healthy. Uh, I didn't bang into the only rock within uh, hundreds of kilometers. And what really impressed me was how fast... Uh, they were releasing public relations material like there were graphics and videos and physical models that people had made just given uh, us
1: 3D stereograms. Yeah, it.
2: like almost immediately as soon as we got science back. That was a very cool uh, data have off work. So uh, Dennis, I, I guess I probably need to
1: hand over to you for preliminary science results. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. Right, And I, just again, the full disclosure is I was a extra galactic astronomer. And so <laughs> not a planetary scientist, but yeah, there's this is got some really great stuff and like you're saying, they brought back or they've already been kind of announcing the data that they have. So the first things first is that it's no longer like what was it? What are they calling it? Like a doggy bone originally or kinda uh it is a contact binary. So it's two lobed, but the one is quite a bit bigger than the other, so it looks kind of like a snowman. And that image, right, the iconic one, if you go to Wikipedia, that's you know floating around, the one that they made the 3D stereogram out of, that's at a distance of about 80,000 miles. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. the closest approach was about 40 times closer. So that's why we still got a little... You know, I'm not sure exactly when they'll release it, but we will get, you know, much higher res uh, imaging. Mm -hmm. And so as far as the science goes, so they confirmed that it is a a contact binary, um, very low speed one, which is kind of odd to find this. There's just so much space out there. So why exactly are you going to have objects, you know, coming together? Yeah, uh, like this, and so yeah,
2: and, and the fact that the first one that we looked at was a contact binary just seems particularly odd.
1: Right. Although I, from what I had seen, uh, Hubble doing kind of an analysis because from light curves you can tell ahead of time mm-hmm. if it's got such a long aspect ratio, it's probably a contact binary. It might be that thirty percent of Kuiper Belt objects are contact binaries,
2: mm-hmm. which you know weird.
1: makes the odds a little less ridiculous. But then that's kind of the thing to explain, like why exactly yeah. are they, you know. And you can, you know, there's different models of whether or not they just happened to come together, or if they were in the two lobes were, you know, separate, along with a whole bunch of other objects and kind of a swarm of orbits. And then just when the lobes came together, that kind of ejected anything else out of there. And so that's why uh, to kind of jump ahead, they didn't see any moons. And so there's kind of nothing else uh, there other than just the pair. And so that's, uh, that's definitely kind of one of the big things to uh, try to answer uh, and figure out is exactly why do you have these things coming together? And so there's very few impact craters on there, which is interesting because it is massive enough that there might be some internal heat, which might drive some cryovolcanism, you know, maybe very low-level stuff. And so that could potentially explain why there are so few impact craters. Or maybe it's just the chemistry going on at the surface. I'm not entirely sure one way or the other. But that was one interesting thing that they found. Uh, Very low albedo, like uh, potting soil, right? So again, to kind of keep in mind a lot of the images you see of it are very high exposure images. Uh, otherwise, again, you're looking at something much, much darker. And just like, you know, Kuiper Belt objects are, they all tend to be kind of red. And uh, sure enough, you know, they verified that it's got this very red color. Both lobes are the same color as far as they can measure. And I, have you guys ever talked about color, like in like the scientific sense? I don't think so. Yeah, So, <laughs> no. so I just, you know, just to make it clear, it's not that, you know, they're kind of looking at, oh, this is the right, you know, tint. This is the same tint, you know, as that one, right? Or, oh yeah, it looks like this shade of red to me. So that's, you know, what we mean by color. Um, basically, you just do imaging in multiple filters and then you just do ratio of how much flux there is coming in a bluer filter versus a redder filter. And then that's how you can actually make a, a quantitative measurement of color. And so when they say it's redder than this, or it's not as red as that, that's uh Comparing that to other objects, and so what's really neat though is that this uh, red cast is uh, likely due to tholins, which are formed by radiation, basically you know interacting with the molecules on the surface. And so tholins, uh, these are uh, are they hydrocarbons? Uh, yeah, yeah, it's it's really simple by uh, hydrocarbons
2: getting oh. hammered by radiation, and then. Turning into bigger hydrocarbons, right? Right, right,
1: right. And so, yeah, so like Pluto and Charon that have that red tint to them. And so this is a similar thing going on out there and so that
2: and it was something they actually predicted before they got there they're saying we're we're expecting this thing to have thylans thion, what are they called how's yeah I, Th- i've never tholans. actually heard it
1: said <laughs> so i always just say tholans but yeah
2: yeah i think it's tholans yeah
1: but i mean not yeah that i mean that would make sense uh for why we know that those give a red tint and so this is an object that is it's both similar and different than pluto um, it's it's a Kuiper Belt object, but it's much much less mass massive. So uh, having a, a, a low surface gravity might affect the surface uh, chemistry. So that's going to be really cool to be able to directly compare what's going on Mu 69 with what we had seen going on Pluto. And forget the 20 months of just getting the data sent back to us. Right? People are still publishing new data on what New Horizons has found mm. from its. Uh, Pluto flyby years ago, and they're going to continue to be doing that for years henceforth. And so we can expect the same thing coming from, you know, Muse 69, where we're going to be just seeing data. Even once we get all the data back, people analyzing it, looking at it in new ways, doing comparative studies, there's just going to be a lot. <laughs> and so that is a neat thing, though, like as far as filling out the parameter space. Now we've got a Kuiper Belt object that is much, much, much smaller than. Pluto is. Uh, It's got a 15-hour rotation period, so uh, relatively slow rotator.
2: And what was really cool was there was a there was a point where we knew it was either we knew it was a multiple of 15. (laughs) Ah. We didn't know if it was fifteen or thirty, and then oh right, (laughs) just from the light curve. I don't even think it was from like the early light curves. It was from very late light curves because you you know you'd think that you've been looking at this thing for so long, the light curve should should really help tell you something. But it turns out that right we were looking almost straight, or the uh, the uh, rotation of axis points almost directly at the sun, so the light curve doesn't change. (laughs) Right. <laughs> um. It just, it was like as bright as it was. And we're like, uh, okay, we got a flat light curve. This, this is not helpful. Um. So they ended up having to use like uh, star occultations to even figure out, you know, what shape this thing was.
1: Yeah. And so uh, a couple other preliminary results. And I mean, you really got to appreciate, right? This just happened and they're yeah. still able to yeah. kind of, you know, you start with the simple things. They're not going to start answering complex questions about what's going on like you know surface chemistry uh they're going to start by just you know we've ruled out rings and satellites larger than one mile in diameter uh there's no detectable atmosphere which uh i guess isn't you know these these are not things that are necessarily surprising in particular the atmosphere but we've been surprised before and so because it's so much colder here so you know these these worlds do have that in their favor of having uh, more of an atmosphere than their low gravity might lead you to believe otherwise. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's super cool because the name of the game is that these are primordial objects, and they're basically been in a deep freeze since the solar system formed. So it's really cool to be able to study an object that is, yeah, it's basically, it's been less affected by... You know the space weather and other things going around it. Then even asteroids in the asteroid belt or you know short period comets have been affected.
0: Cool. All right. Well, awesome. Next up, hey, let's uh, talk about Osiris Rex ringing in the new year. So we Yay. got <laughs>
1: 2019 is going to be tough to beat as far as, or I guess 2018 slash 2019 as far as planetary science goes. <laughs>
0: I think we're off to a pretty good start. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, Osiris Rex at 1943 universal time on New Year's Eve entered orbit around. Bennu. So my question, because we've talked about this a bit, is how do we know that it actually entered orbit <laughs> when you're talking about an object that's so mm-hmm. low in gravity? Yeah.
2: Uh, so so first off, let
0: me say thank you to
2: Andrew Levine. Um, he works at Kinetics, um, which does like the flight dynamics for OSIRIS-REx. Um, and after we um, interviewed Richard Witherspoon, he got in touch, and uh, we had a little bit of a back and forth. And uh, this week he you know wrote us to give us kind of an update and I thought it was interesting enough to use it to kind of drive this uh, this article or this um, this news topic. Um, so there will be a link in the show notes to a solar system.nasa uh, blog post. Um, but a lot of this is just coming straight from the horse's mouth. Sorry to to call you a horse, Andrew. (laughs) So there definitely was a point where we hit orbital insertion. Uh, That happened at uh, 1943 hours, 55 seconds UTC on New Year's Eve. Um, So that's why I'm calling it uh, second uh, New Year ringing in. So uh, basically what happened was they performed the maneuver known as M3A. And I'll link to a PDF... Um, that's hosted on NASA.gov, but it was actually published, uh, it's, it's an article that was originally published uh, back in 2017 at the uh, International ESA, ESA Conference on GNC, um, so it's an ESA article that, that was published. And uh, it was written by a bunch of people from kinetics, basically. And so the article is just talking about here's how we're going to navigate once we get to asteroid Bennu. So, um, you know, all these different burns have different names. And it's interesting because this article actually outlines not only the intended burns, but also possible fallbacks in case they can't uh, perform the burn uh, immediately you can do the secondary burns and basically have the same effect so m3A is this uh, burn that gets you into a stable or uh, sorry a frozen orbit is what they call it. so originally they were going to be approaching Bennu retro or they were going to be approaching Bennu prograde then do I think like a 12 centimeter uh, like a 10 to 12 centimeter per second burn and kind of bounce the spacecraft and then have it be flying in a retrograde orbit um, but they ended up um, approaching already retrograde so they didn't have to bounce so they were able to do a six centimeter per second uh, roughly an eight second burn and they put themselves from this free drifting kind of velocity right because they as they approached, Uh, They're kind of bouncing back and forth and doing kind of the zigzag pattern. And so they went from that, hey, we're orbiting the sun to a, hey, we're orbiting Bennu. Um, So it put them into a, a relatively low orbit. I mean, it's a low orbit by anybody's standards, but especially relative to their previous motion, it's a very, very low orbit. And it's this elliptical orbit that's called frozen because what it does is it balances solar pressure against gravity from the asteroid. And so it's a relatively stable orbit as opposed to most of the orbits around Bennu, which will, you know, cause you to get flung off or crash or, you know, one of the two. So they basically science said, okay, we want to orbit parallel with the terminator, which is the edge of the shadow that delineates day and night, right? So it's the twilight ring so they they knew that they wanted to be in an orbit that was parallel with uh the terminator and this is the orbit that happens to work for that how cool is that
0: does that answer your question david yeah this uh frozen orbit which is something that i've never actually heard of so you have to balance the solar pressure and I guess that was my concern is how do you manage that plus there are other gravitational things in the area maybe I don't know I mean not
2: not really but yeah Bennu's orbital uh or Bennu's gravitational field is pretty lumpy so it's kind of like the moon how the moon only has what three frozen orbits or three stable orbits
0: that's right okay so maybe I have heard of it and I've just forgotten because now that is bringing that back to me. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
2: So um, in the next few weeks, they're going to be transitioning to landmark navigation. Remember when we talked to Richard, I think I asked the question, okay, so are you guys navigating based off the stars? Or are you navigating based off Bennu? And so this is going to be the point where they're moving towards navigating based on their view of Bennu. Um, And that's really cool because it works hand in hand with dialing in the asteroid's geophysical characterization, right? Because you need Mm -hmm. good geophysical characterization to be able to navigate by it, but you also need to orbit low to be able to characterize it. So it kind of... You kind of get both of those two things done together. They kind of slide in together. And then uh, I wanted to mention a couple of upcoming events, uh, which actually, uh, which Andrew was kind enough to compile for us. Um, So they're going to be doing a, a detailed survey of the surface Uh, from late February to June. Then they'll enter orbital B, which is a circular orbit. Um, That's June to August, roughly. And then they'll do sample site reconnaissance, September to December. And then they will start doing sample acquisition rehearsal. And then finally, sample acquisition uh, is intended to occur in July 2020.
0: All right. So you have here a little list of uh, a handful of records that Osiris Rex has broken.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Andrew put this together too. Isn't this great?
0: Yeah. And this is not even a full list, apparently. So there might be more and I'm sure that there will be more records that it will break in the future
2: yeah sure. uh, the way the way Andrew put it, is he said uh, Osiris Rex has now broken a handful of records including and possibly not limited to <laughs> so uh so there are three notable ones here first off is orbiting the smallest body so you know this is like a closed orbit where you're actually you know orbiting in a kerbal space program kind of sense first first or or smallest body in history Uh, this is also the slowest orbit in history it's roughly five centimeters per second oh my gosh isn't that insane so crazy uh it's also the lowest orbital altitude um so at periaps they're only one and a quarter kilometers above the surface of Bennu.
1: i would love to be there and just kind of look up and be like oh yeah
2: you know here it's coming yeah (laughs) there's that satellite (laughs) at five centimeters a second (laughs) i mean we're we're getting down to human scales right like these are these are you know distances that humans can fathom and you know on Bennu there are actually distances that a human can jump right (laughs) like right (laughs) what what this feels like in my head when I'm thinking about this is it feels like um the game Outer Wilds um have you guys played that Mm
0: -hmm. no but I've heard you talk about it before
2: yeah I've talked about it before and uh, full (laughs) disclosure I'm a mod on the subreddit Um, but they're getting ready to release but it was it was this guy's uh master's thesis um, where he wanted to play around with storytelling in video games. And so what he the world he chose to work in is a very, very small-scale solar system. And there are plenty of bodies that you can run and jump off of. But the orbital mm-hmm. speeds are all super low, and your delta-v is ridiculously high. Um, and so it's fun to play around with the orbital the orbital dynamics, but it, it really feels loose and light and bouncy, and you feel like you mm-hmm. can do anything. That, like that sounds
1: really cool. I have to check that out.
0: let's do some short and sweet we got three of them and what's our first one ben
2: uh demo one is imminent Uh, A Crew Dragon atop a Falcon 9 has rolled out onto Pad 39A. The vehicle was raised into a vertical position on January 3rd and is now undergoing various fit checks and integration checks. This Crew Dragon is scheduled to lift off no earlier than January 17th for its Demo 1 mission. However, due to the ongoing partial government shutdown, that date could slip. As for the Boeing Starliner, it's still on schedule for its unpiloted test flight
1: in March. And the Chang'e-4 has landed successfully. Uh, China's Chang'e-4 spacecraft successfully made the first ever soft landing on the far side of the moon touching down within the Von Karman crater on January 2nd. Images from the lander have already been released, including views of the U2-2 rover, both before and after deployment. The Chiao satellite, positioned at the L2 Earth-Moon Lagrange point, has successfully relayed communication from Chang'e 4 back to Earth as the mission moves forward,
0: studying the lunar surface and solar-related phenomena. And lastly, an Orbicom satellite breaks up. On December 22nd, it was confirmed that one of Orpcom's satellites, OG-1, broke up into 34 trackable objects. Uh, the OG-1 satellite was one of Orpcom's first-generation sats, which accounts for only a small percentage of its traffic. The newer OG-2 satellite provides six times the bandwidth, so service interruption should be minimal. Currently, it has not been determined what caused these satellites' breakup, but an investigation is underway. Hmm. So, very mysterious. Okay,
2: stand by
1: We're looking at it.
0: Questions, comments, and correction burns, we got a couple things to discuss. First up, this is Chris Burke in our Slack channel at The Water Cooler. One little thing about last week, you had mentioned something about static friction, and I'm kind of glad this was brought up just because it kind of irked me because I wasn't sure myself, so I'm glad that we have somebody listening who knows more than we do (laughs) to actually confirm this. So static friction. I guess, Ben, what was the context? Uh, We were talking about the The U2 U2 rover. rover.
2: Yeah, my uh, my impression was that you could have a steeper a steeper ramp in lower gravity and that you would slip later because the static friction was increased. But of course, because the gravity is lessened, the static friction actually, you might expect that it would lessen, but in fact it, um, when you do the math, it actually gets um, simplified out of the equation and gravity actually has no no effect on the amount of friction between two objects richard durden was nice enough to come to my defense and and suggest that maybe static friction increases in a vacuum uh, because you have increased adhesion uh, so I, we basically we had a bunch of people going back people smarter than me going back well, for <laughs> the, the physics and i'm just like Oh, okay. I was wrong. I I can take that away from this. <laughs> I gotta...
0: But to be clear, I believe what he was saying is that, in fact, static friction, it actually goes up with more gravity because you have more force between those two objects. It is just that it would not slip, or it's not more likely to slip if it's on uh, an incline.
2: You're right. That's why there's the, the trigonometry in there. Ah, uh, Okay, yeah. So the static gravity goes down. Or, Jesus. The static friction might go down.
0: The static friction goes down as gravity decreases, but so does the mass of the object. And so they're actually proportional. So it, it actually yeah. does not matter how much force you have. Right. Um, exactly. I mean, right. that's kind of like the layman's explanation, yeah, yeah. The yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Layman's explanation without the math. Yeah. Because, yeah, the math can be confusing.
2: <laughs> and then uh, uh, Marion in our Discord. Oh, so one of the really cool things, if you're a Patreon supporter, you I think it's $3 and up. No, it's $5 and up. If you're a $5 and up Patreon supporter, you get access to our Discord where we record live every week. Well, not only that, but you get Discord the rest of the week. And so there's always uh, conversations going on uh, just in the text chat, and it's it's pretty cool. And in there this week, Marion pointed out that in episode 189, um, we talked about VSS Unity, the uh, Spaceship Two. And um, I believe. I would have agreed with the phrase benign payload, uh, but I I think I have to point my finger and say that it was uh, Dennis who said that. That was me that said that. But I I would agree with it. Um, And uh, Marion says that uh, that the benign payload does experiments on dust and microgravity. Well, the funny thing is that the people behind this experiment also run a space podcast called Walk About the Galaxy where they were very excited about this experiment. So, yeah, we I don't think anybody here would um, poo-poo any science experiment. It's all good. But, you know, we're, I think we're allowed to quantify the amount of enthusiasm we have. And yeah. suborbital is obviously a little less enthusiasm building than orbital science, but that's okay. It's still good science. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, walkaboutthegalaxy.com. There will be a link in the show notes. Um, I'm going to see if I can figure out which episode they talked about it because – uh, that's that's so cool that like these people have a podcast and they already talked about it. So.
0: We're gonna talk about Sea Dragon. I think for the first time really on the podcast, we, we were gonna yeah. do I think an interview a long time ago, I believe with Emery Stagmar. Do you remember that, Ben?
2: Yeah, I don't I don't remember if we ever like really planned a good Sea Dragon interview with him. But it definitely is up his alley.
0: Yeah. But uh, this week we have Valentin Frank. Welcome back. Thank you for having me back. Yeah, our one-time co-host, <laughs> yeah. I think just... co-host emeritus. Yeah. So this is an interesting topic that I, you know, I don't know a whole lot about it because I guess I've never taken the time because it seems kind of crazy and out there. But um, Mm -hmm. I suppose it's your job here to convince us that maybe (laughs) this is a plausible way of getting things into space. Yeah. And I think that's uh, what's really fun about this
3: topic is that it's not just, you know, one of those crazy ideas that someone wrote up and uh, has a thousand reasons why it shouldn't work. Like, it kind of does work. There's reasons why we don't have a Sea Dragon working right now. uh, And we can get to those uh, in a bit too. But it is not as dumb of an idea once you really break it down into all of its parts which
2: for me is why it's so alluring right it's like Mm, mm -hmm. eminently possible but we you know in this timeline we just didn't get to do it
3: then especially i think it's really really timely right now because we are seeing a new giant steel rocket being built right now um but with such a different design philosophy that it would have been fun to see the spacex that would have ended up making sea dragon instead of uh
0: starship
2: Um, oh i like this alternate universe
0: (laughs) yeah i think you hit on something there you said a steel object right so Mm -hmm. i guess we're going to get into this at some point but this is something that at least if i recall correctly would be made of just you know steel yeah yeah so i guess it's not it's not unlike well what's it called now starship star hopper right now oh yeah
1: i did like that i could kind of explain it to my mom you know in just 30 seconds and yet obviously we can go into a lot more detail like we will
3: (laughs) should we just start at the top let's do it so just as a quick little uh bit of background here i'm going to be telling you a bunch of things about uh this rocket pretty much all of the info uh that we have about uh the vehicle comes from a series of two design documents written in 1963 that were presented to NASA by the Aerojet General Corporation that really outlined uh, the purpose and design behind the vehicle, but also uh, was a research into the feasibility uh, and really tried to disprove it uh, and ended up not really being able to disprove the the ability to do this and uh, if you're interested i highly recommend going back and looking at it it's about 200 pages but it's full of pictures and graphs and diagrams and is actually really really fascinating to look into also about a quarter of it is redacted so who knows what's in that little bit (laughs) the design was originally proposed in 1962 uh, which is right around the time that uh, the JFK part of the space race, you know, with the going to the moon because it's difficult speech uh, and uh, stuff nope, is happening. no,
2: I need an impression, please.
3: We choose to go to the moon because... <laughs> uh, wait, wait, sorry, I can't even remember the quote now.
2: We choose to go to the moon.
3: <laughs> and do the other things. And, and do the, the <laughs> other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. There you go. Yeah. You <laughs> go. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so Sea Dragon itself, as originally pitched... Um, would have been by far the largest vehicle uh, ever to have flown at the time. Uh, it was proposed as 150 meters tall, which is comparison, the Saturn V is 110 meters. It's about as tall as the Pyramid of Giza or a one and a half American football fields uh, stacked on top of each other. And my favorite little tidbit or the way to kind of visualize it is if you stood at one end of it and shouted to your friend who was standing at the other end, it would take almost half a second for the sound to reach from engine bell to tip of the rocket. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In addition to being that uh, tall, it was also really wide, 23 meters which is over twice as wide as the Saturn V in terms of capacity would have also been by far the largest vehicle ever uh, to have been launched. Uh, it was supposed to have a capacity of a million one hundred thousand pounds to Leo in its reusable configuration. It was a little spoiler, and uh, inexpendable, that would have gone uh, even larger. To put that into context, that would have been enough mass to launch the entire ISS and a space shuttle orbiter in a single launch.
0: So how, I might be jumping ahead here, but mm-hmm. how does the reusable configuration work? Oh, trust me, it is delightful and you will be, yeah, I'll get to that in just a sec. Okay, I'll hang on.
3: Uh, despite all of the super ambitious goals in terms of scale, uh, the rocket was extremely simple. And this uh, whole philosophy is referred to as the big dumb booster idea where it uses as much heritage hardware uh, and simple mechanics as possible to keep the development uh, really streamlined, to keep building it really streamlined, and to make a vehicle that is distinctly not efficient in terms of the rocketry and the mechanics, but very efficient in terms of building and financing and flying it, and that it makes up for the inefficiencies in flying simply in terms of scale. And part of that is that, uh, the vehicle itself is actually described as only the engines, the tanks, uh, and the flight hardware. They didn't develop any guidance or communication or anything. That was all going to be handled by the fact that at the very tip of the rocket, there would just be an Apollo capsule just kind of glued onto it. Uh, and that was going to handle all of that. Um, so the proposal was really just for the lifting body itself. Yeah,
0: this causes me to wonder now, really, how does the reusable configuration work? <laughs> because like once it separates, mm-hmm. it would have to just fall back right there's no guidance hardware you know like on the booster uh and
3: Hmm. like i said i can go into the details uh in uh in just a little bit once i've described the rest of it but even that part kind of follows the the same ideas of being as simple and straightforward as possible all the reusability no propulsive landing no anything it was all about making something that you can basically just drop back to earth and that there's built in a way that it can survive that and just be fished out and used again so it's Yeah, a very... uh, ULA calls their reusability with Vulcan smart reuse, this is the dumbest reuse there is. Yeah. (laughs) So to break it down a little bit more, uh, the Sea Dragon is a two-stage vehicle. The first stage alone would have had the mass of two entire Saturn saturn V's put together but instead of uh having a number of engines even big ones like the f1 this uh vehicle was proposed to just have a single gigantic engine to power the entire first stage this single engine would have had 36 million pounds of thrust uh, once again to compare as a comparison the saturn V uh combined all the engines would have had about 7 million and this single engine uh would have been built in a completely pressure-fed system. Uh, No turbo pumps, no anything, a simple, you have an an oxygen tank, you have a fuel tank, uh, and then you have an inert gas to pressurize the whole thing. It was proposed to be an uh, RP-1 and LOX engine, although other fuels were investigated. This just seemed uh, the easiest, and uh, there's a couple specific reasons that'll come up in a little bit, too. It would have been one of the most inefficient rocket engines ever built as well. The specific impulse in a vacuum of this engine would have been somewhere between 200 and 240 seconds. Once again, as a comparison, the F1 engine on the Saturn V, which is also not a very efficient engine, has about 300 seconds of theoretical uh, vacuum-specific impulse. And yeah, it would have just been an absolute monster of an engine. Sometimes you see the fact tossed around that the entire second stage of the Saturn V would have fit just within the engine bell of this single engine. But what that doesn't account for uh, is that that's only the height. In terms of volume, you could have fit the entire Saturn V into that engine bell.
1: Dang, that was going to be my kind of question. Is just how big is this? <laughs> actual? Just the engine itself.
3: Uh, so uh, 23 meters wide. Uh, and I believe about 30-ish meters from bottom uh, to the beginning of the combustion chamber. So that's the the bell, and then uh, just a single gigantic combustion chamber capable of operating 65 million pounds of thrust. It would have also been a relatively low-pressure engine. The combustion chamber at ignition would have had a pressure of about 20 atmospheres, uh, which is really, really low, even by the standards of these pressure-fed systems. But it actually has a nice little side effect, which means that um, the idea of combustion uh, instability is slightly um, minimized in this system. This was something that was looked into really... Uh, detailed during the proposal and design process. And I'm not going to talk too in depth because uh, A, I don't really know what I'm talking about with that. And B, we Mm -hmm. had an amazing data relay on combustion instability already. So I think if you want to get into the mechanics, I would listen to that. But they did very specifically look into this and it was deemed not really to be an issue and that, uh, quote, Sea Dragon Thrust Chamber will operate well outside the, rain, uh, the region of combustion instability.
0: So I'm trying to figure out why it would have just one engine, because we're talking about one massive engine, right? Mm-hmm. So why not several mm-hmm. smaller ones? Is that just for the sake of simplicity?
3: Yeah pretty much just to mean uh, make it so that there's a minimum amount of plumbing in the rocket you have one pipe going to the oxidizer tank one pipe to the fuel tank and that is it because and that um, the more engines you add there that exponentially increases not only the complexity of the construction but also the amount of expertise and technical knowledge that needs to go into building it and in a bit I'm uh, I'm also going to talk about the the cost for this whole vehicle uh, and one of the reasons they could do such a shockingly low cost for all of these things is because building this rocket didn't really take top-tier rocket engineers. This was something that could be uh, built by basically naval shipyards and existing um, steelworking technology outside of the really high-end space age metalworking that was used on uh, other space vehicles at the time. That is the Horrifying massive first stage. <laughs> Put on top of that is the somehow even more bizarre second stage. Uh, the second stage would have been a hydrolox stage. Also a single gigantic engine. But as we know, vacuum engines, they like a little bit more of a nozzle. Uh, and the first stage nozzle was already the width of the entire rocket, 23 meters. Uh, so they did the only reasonable thing that you could expect uh, and <laughs> make a uh, an expanding engine bell. So that they could go even wider than the width of this rocket uh, hopefully Ben is going to uh, post the a link of a YouTube video that does an amazing animation of this
2: oh yeah um, I was I was already on my way
3: <laughs> but and, and I highly recommend looking at it because I'm gonna say it out loud and it's gonna sound ridiculous but this is actually what they were saying, but their plan was that the the effectively the interstage between the first and second stage would unfurl like a set of flower petals and become the engine bell for the second stage uh it would be almost 30 meters wide uh at the bottom of the engine bell which again is three times the width of an entire Saturn V
0: that doesn't seem possible like (laughs) that sounds like adding complexity to me you know
3: I I have to say this is the part of the design that me completely subjectively as a, as a layperson has me the most skeptical because it is the one part of this rocket that we really haven't seen anyone else ever do. Uh, there is no vehicle that has this sort of unfurling engine bell design. There are expandable nozzles and variable nozzles, but never anything on this scale and never anything that is made from the same materials as the outer stage of uh, of a rocket. So I this is the part that... I would also, just gut reaction, be the most skeptical of being functional.
2: The, the thing, though, is if you have to pick a point of complexity. This is a pretty good point to choose, right? Mm-hmm. It's better to to throw all of your time and money into this one feature, which um, makes a whole system much more efficient than to just say, okay, well, let's build a bunch of uh, a bunch of plumbing. And it's like, well, okay, yeah, absolutely. a bunch of plumbing is nice if you've got really high efficiency small engines. Then, yeah, that's that's a great thing. But
3: yeah, absolutely. And because you're on such a giant scale, this isn't precision engineering i think the the engineering challenge here is making something that doesn't break not something mm-hmm. that is within centimeters exactly the same every single time which is a different type of engineering problem than complex plumbing and uh really complex avionics and such so i mentioned this stage uh is a hydrogen and oxygen stage obviously those are great for uh, upper stage engines higher uh, efficiency can be reached etc etc it has a couple other nice little benefits which is that uh one of the things that is also interesting about this vehicle that we'll go more to def- in just a bit. Uh, But this was going to be an ocean-launched vehicle. And uh, the ocean happens to be a great place to get hydrogen and oxygen from. And part of this proposal was to actually fuel this at sea Uh, with a hydrolysis plant at the quote-unquote launch site. In order to power this, uh, the proposal entailed uh, pulling a nuclear-powered aircraft carrier alongside the rocket floating in the ocean uh, and using the main power plant from that aircraft carrier to produce uh, the fuel in situ and then uh, fuel the rocket uh, right there and then. Or at least the second stage.
0: So because I was going to ask and you kind of did allude to this that what makes it possible to make this so simple is mostly the size because I'm kind of wondering why can this be done at sea but not Mm -hmm. on land. And it's just that the sea allows for a larger size vehicle, and mm-hmm. the size is what allows for a simpler vehicle. Is that kind of like how you'd see it? So the reason it was launched in the ocean is for a couple of reasons. One
3: of the primary ones right off the bat uh is simply that if you were to put this rocket on a land launch pad, it would completely destroy anything. Nearby, To give you an idea of the amount of energy that this gigantic first stage engine uh, would have produced, the sound uh, in the pr- immediate proximity of the first stage would have been about 185 decibels, but you have to remember decibels are a logarithmic scale, so every 10 steps in that is a uh, an order of magnitude. The maximum loudness that any acoustic energy can be before it becomes a shockwave instead of a sound is 194. It is very, very close to that. The sound of this rocket launch at 10 to 15 miles away would have been about as loud as a shotgun going off next to your ear at 10 to 15 miles. The raw amount of energy here uh, at the launch pad itself is way beyond the capacity of any launch pad. It would have left a crater wherever it was. So the underwater launch first or the, the the ocean launch is the only place on the surface where we can release that much energy and not cause the rampant destruction just from the launch itself in addition well, to that let's, all of let's that, be
2: honest yeah. this is gonna fuck up a whale like um <laughs> <laughs>
3: uh, but uh in addition to you know the rampant destruction of potential launch facilities uh, it's also for the sake of the vehicle itself. All of those vibrations, all of that energy, al- if it were on land, a lot of that would end up uh, going into the vehicle itself. And very likely, it would have been an impossible challenge to make a vehicle strong enough to withstand all of those vibrations, all of that uh, force. So in the ocean, it's as much for the uh, vehicle's sake as for the, the the poor launch facility.
2: Were there studies on how this would affect sea life? Because um, obviously... You know, Mm -hmm. back in the 60s or whatever, this, you know, we weren't really too terribly concerned about the ocean in ways that we are Mm -hmm.
3: today. I, of course, can't speak in general. Uh, In the design documents proposed here, uh, there was no mention of it at all. It was mentioned how destructive it would be to, uh, like, life on land if it had been there. But no, it was, uh, to my knowledge, it was not really looked into the effects on the ocean and honestly i don't have a good sense of how destructive uh, it would have been or how effective being underwater would have been at absorbing
2: well uh, yeah like the the thing is that like what we're talking about here is how well that acoustic energy is transferred into the water. Cause, mm-hmm. cause once it's in the water, it will go, you know, much longer distances than it would have been oh, yeah. Um, it, It's just how much of it you actually can dump into the water. And, you know, we know that constant sound pollution really does, you know, damage whales and other, other animals that rely on, on sonar and hearing. But, you know, I, I wonder how big of a deal, you know, a, a ridiculously loud explosion, you know, maybe twice a year once it's really gone up you know yeah
3: no it's it's a good point and i think even more of a good point if you hear where uh, they proposed to launch it which was um off the coast of california between somewhere in the area between santa barbara and vandenberg which is definitely an area that does have a large amount of Mm -hmm. sea life and uh people in on the coasts uh so yeah it's an interesting thought and at the very least in this design proposal it wasn't something that was really addressed
2: so in this alternate universe where SpaceX built Sea Dragon instead of Starship, there would be undoubtedly a Twitter account called Wayward Whale uh,
3: instead of (laughs) Yeah, I guess like, yeah, uh, low-level whale activity instead of high-level wind activity.
1: Right, 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 yeah.
3: Also, um, the actual launch operations in terms of uh, bringing the rocket out to sea and fueling it uh, and then preparing for launch is about a three-day process. It's not like a really quick, like, suddenly you go out and then you have to like hope there's no whale there and then launch uh, like it is a fairly extensive set of operations which a lot with a large number of support boats after all like possibly even an aircraft carrier so it definitely doesn't seem infeasible to have that part of launch operations speaking of just to give you an idea of how these pre-launch operations would have looked like the vehicle would have been uh built horizontally in a in a dock and then towed out to sea by a series of tugboats and barges at the uh, at the business end of the rocket. Part of the uh, construction process would have been the attachment of a series of ballast tanks that would have been mounted straight onto the bell. Once in position and fully fueled, these ballast tanks would start to fill and drag the the engine bell down Mm. until the entire vehicle is vertical. One thing uh, that you might think would be a problem in this uh, is, you know, waves and tides and sea motion. But this actually um, doesn't really affect objects on this large of a scale. Uh, And this is actually a phenomenon that is fairly well studied across, you know, building oil rigs and uh, ships and everything. We, We really understand how Floating objects in various configurations do interact with that, and that was deemed not really to be a problem. And then from that uh, vertical configuration, probably sticking about two-thirds out of the water, one-third under the water, uh, is where it would launch from uh, and in that moment detach from the ballast tanks underneath. And again, it sounds kind of silly, but this exact kind of launch configuration and set of launch procedures is something that we've actually done before, uh, with a much, much smaller rocket called the C-B, as in C like ocean, B like the little insect, which was a kind of a proof-of-concept vehicle that was launched twice in 1961 and launched in the exact same uh, way. It was tugged horizontally out to sea, had ballast tanks on the bottom. Uh, They filled, it went vertical, uh,
0: and then launched out of the water. Okay, so you have the engine igniting underwater, right? Like, it's actually Mm -hmm. flooded with water. That also seems rather Mm -hmm. risky and, like, adding complexity, or at least, you know, like, Mm -hmm. adding the complexity of trying to mitigate whatever problem you would have doing so. Yeah. So how well is that understood?
3: So uh, they uh, saw two main problems with, uh, with the underwater ignition and launch the first is the effect that the water themselves have on um, the materials you know the the metals salt water is notoriously corrosive it's one of the reasons why we don't really reuse things that landed in the water in terms of you know engine bells and such they claimed that using corrosion resistant steel would have been enough to avoid corrosion problems and other than that just waterproofing the electrical systems etc Another point, I think, that might be one of those that ends up being a little more complicated than uh, thought of. But at the same time, when you think about uh, the actual components in a pressure-fed engine, there's really not that much that a little corrosion would change. Uh, It's basically as long as the main valves... Uh, going to the various pressurized systems are still working. Everything else can can pretty much go. In terms of getting the engine bell empty so there's no water in it at the moment of launch, the idea was simply to um, first uh, flood it with a certain amount of liquid oxygen from the tank to kind of push it out before the moment of ignition. That was calculated into the uh, capacity of the, the tanks and the the overall capacity of the rocket and would account for about a 3% uh, drop in performance of the rocket having to first do that before ignition. But once again, the other option would be to uh, do the whole thing on land. And that wasn't really an option. Uh, so they that was simply an inefficiency that they were okay doing uh, and using some of their oxidizer to forcibly empty the combustion chamber
0: and engine bell before ignition. So they flood it with oxygen And then they ignite and Mm -hmm. that's like not a problem.
3: (laughs) (laughs) You know what? I think you've perfectly hit on pretty much the reaction that anyone should have to this of, you know, you hear about this rocket and you just go, and that's not a problem. It was, once again, in the design document, was specifically raised as a question of is this something that can be done? And between past experiences with the CB vehicle and the simplicity of the pressure-fed engine, uh, they believed that it would not be an issue. Just to kind of come around to something else that I uh, mentioned uh building the vehicle itself because obviously a rocket like this you can't really build the same way that you know smaller smaller vehicles are made this is one of my favorite kind of ideas associated with it which is the um that they would instead of treating uh the whole vehicle as building a rocket they would have treated it more like building a ship it would have been uh, built in uh, initially a dry dock and then they would have let water flood in float it up and then kind of finish it as it's Floating in the water. There were several military shipyards on the west coast who already showed a certain amount of interest in working on it and had the materials uh, and uh, construction techniques already available uh, to make this. The rocket itself would have been built out of. 300 series maraging steel. Not sure if I'm pronouncing that word right, but uh, it's the same type of steel that's used in uh, deep sea submarines. And actually the construction of the vehicle would have been rather similar to building a submarine, initially at least, in terms of the welding process and everything. If that sounds like a strange uh, substance to make that out of, it's actually the same type of uh, metal that a lot of SRBs are built from as well. So it's not unheard of for that to be used as a flight article. One of the, the... Kind of funny little details about this is uh, with a uh, 23-meter-wide vehicle that was floating in the water and uh, was completely empty, it would float very, very high up in the water, and it's very difficult to reach the top of it. So uh, they outlined a specific... Set of steps that they would use to construct it, which would involve uh, first making uh, a semicircle, you know, the one half of the rocket, and then just slowly rolling it like a like a spit roast in the water, uh, mm. and completing the second half of it as they're going around the vehicle like that. The majority of the rocket would be built like that, including the two main engines. But of course, there's still eventually between electrical components uh, and the parts needed to integrate the Apollo spacecraft and uh, other components. It would. Uh, Need a certain amount of support from traditional aerospace manufacturers as well. One thing uh, I failed to mention earlier when talking about the second stage is the second stage, uh, in addition to the main. Uh, engine of the second stage. Also has four uh, small Vernier engines. I say small because relative (laughs) to the rest of the vehicle, they are small. They are actually massive. The engine bells of these could have fit an Apollo spacecraft in and of themselves, but they were relative to the vehicle small enough uh, that they didn't really affect thrust. They were really just for controlling the second stage attitude control and roll control for both stages. And these would be more traditional engines that would be built by a more traditional aerospace manufacturer. Still pressure-fed, though. It still good. it takes from the same tank, still the same principles.
0: Now, are these the engines that are mounted on the side of the vehicle? Because I'm looking at a little animation here. Yes. I mean, they're kind of high up along the body, right? Which is mm-hmm. different.
3: Yeah, They on the, uh, when the rocket initially launches, they would be pretty high up. They're, you know, right about the middle. But once the first stage drops away, they would be pretty much right, right at the bottom of the second stage, and then it looks a little more, a uh, little more proportional. And they really only affected the second stage. The the first stage uh, bell uh, would be fully gimbaled and could provide its own attitude control. And once you start dealing with forces that large, these four little engines would really affect it. So they were they were ignited at the beginning of the launch, but really did not affect the vehicle until a second a second stage flight.
1: So, that was going to be a question I had, because it seemed like once the ballast tanks come off, I guess not enough time passes for, you know, once the main, uh, the first stage fires, Mm -hmm. that, like, you know, it'll tip a little bit, but I was wondering if the Vernier engines kind of stabilize it in that maybe, you know, second or, I don't know how long, how much time there is after the ballast tanks come off, but before the first stage fires.
3: So, the exact sequence of this isn't described clearly in the design document, so, uh, I'm trusting the that video animation that uh, uh, we mentioned earlier. In that one, it looks as though the release from the ballast tank happens after the ignition of the first stage, in very close succession, but uh, that the first stage, perhaps even just the force of igniting the first stage, kind of blows off the ballast tanks. Since the little Vernier engines uh, would be underwater at the moment of launch, I would be curious to know how much, if that gave them a little more control, because they were pushing against something more solid than just air. But my gut reaction would be to say that just the thrust they create is such a small deal in the scale of the entire system that they wouldn't have much of an effect unless something was going wrong
0: but they are there to provide roll control for the first stage right because it just has one big yeah. engine yes
3: assumably uh yeah and yes in fact uh specifically that was their main job uh, during first stage flight but uh the force is required to roll a rocket when you're going what's the the word for for uh if, if they don't have to push against the the vector of thrust uh, from the first stage
2: yeah and they they also have a huge moment arm compared to most vernier rockets so it kind
3: of yeah they're almost pointing out at
0: like 30 degrees or so yeah well plus it's just like 23 meters right from one end right, right mm-hmm. to the other yeah, yeah. oh yeah absolutely
3: so yeah let's talk about the the cost of the the vehicle real quick because i think <laughs> yeah. yeah so if we is...
2: <laughs> if we weren't overwhelmed already let's talk about
3: it <laughs> yeah even though the rocket itself would have been horrendously inefficient from a spaceflight uh standpoint financially it was from the ground up designed to be a very very efficient uh program developing the entire system was proposed to cost $2.8 billion, and that would be over the course of 68 months. So the, the entire years and years of development time and building and everything would have still been under, and that price is adjusted for 2018. The next numbers I'm about to say are still going to be in 1916 money, but that one specifically was tossed around a lot, especially once SLS started getting really expensive. People started talking about this number again. The per payload cost is would have been absolutely unheard of uh, with this vehicle. I already mentioned it had a gigantic payload capacity. If we do some quick little division that comes out to $10 to $20 per pound of payload, Assuming full reusability of the vehicle, assuming um, more refurbishment costs, or uh, not flying as much, that could have gone up to uh, 20 to $50 per pound of payload. But still, that is uh, orders of magnitude less than what we're looking at. Do any of you off the top of your head know what the cost per pound of payload to LEO... That SpaceX offers in fully reusable, uh, maybe $1, a thousand dollars. Yeah, a thousand.
2: Yeah, that's kind of the area I'm thinking. I thought it was a little lower than a thousand, but something like that.
3: So we're we're in general we're talking about a, a tenth of the cost uh, yeah. of uh, what something like SpaceX is offering. Once again, this is best case scenarios, uh, incurring no cost overruns and everything working out perfectly but still it's a completely different scale of money that we're talking about with this the engines themselves the thrust chambers uh would have cost less than five million dollars a pop to build that is the main reason for a high cost in a lot of vehicles uh, and one of the reasons why they did go for the the very very simple very easy pressure-fed system also uh, the development costs so research and development and labor and testing um, costs would have been very very negligible in compared to uh, other vehicles being developed at the time leaving the overall program cost down as well as the individual launch cost. And then lastly, the other huge cost-saving measures uh, is actually uh, because of the sea launch. Even though it has its own set of difficulties and complexities, it is a much, much cheaper way to launch if you don't have to uh, have all the backup facilities and all of the ground support needed for a traditional land-based launch.
2: And like, you know, this isn't something they considered, I don't believe, but like technically, you don't even have to have permission of any governments, you know? (laughs) like if you go out far Yeah.
3: Yeah, so they they were proposing launching about 3 miles from shore, which I don't think is international waters yet. No uh but definitely not at this point they are dreaming big enough that i think they could get away with whatever they want so we've been kind of dancing around the topic of reuse but let me go a little more into detail because david was very very interested um so uh the reuse would only involve the first stage uh the second stage would not be reused the idea was to simply uh drop it off and then use an inflatable drag skirt to slow it down enough that it could survive the impact with the water sounds a little ridiculous but remember if you you have a rocket that is from top to bottom made of really thick solid steel without any delicate plumbing or piping very very little in terms of delicate electronics it can come down pretty fast and still be In an acceptable state to uh, refurbish. Specifically, their impact velocity, uh, they said if it was under 300 meters per second, uh, that was within the margin of potentially reusing. But they did acknowledge that they wouldn't quite know until they could actually test this because the type of aerodynamics, the type of uh, re-entry dynamics have never been done for an object in this size.
2: So 300 meters per second is really fast.
3: Oh yeah. And water is real hard at that speed.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, so Mm -hmm. 300 meters per second is close to the speed of sound at sea level, right? Like this is like faster than most airliners fly. (laughs) Like Mm -hmm. this is about as fast as it went up uh mm-hmm. well I mean significantly faster at the point of impact oh yeah. um that's insane that they thought they're like yeah you know we're not sure but we're we're thinking somewhere in the range of 300 meters per second like that's insane
3: yeah if they uh had not you know put any type of um aerodynamic braking or anything on it um it would have st- uh the, figured roughly that the terminal velocity of the stage would still be quite a bit higher than that
2: yeah i mean it's it's like a rock yeah uh,
3: the other nice thing is about the inflatable drag skirt uh is that it potentially could have also helped with the impact itself you know be a sort of fun little airbag but um
2: even though it's on the wrong side of the leading edge
3: so yeah the the the, the idea would be would it be uh could they make a sort of thing that wraps around kind of like a donut they also acknowledged that uh this would not just be a fish it out of the water refuel it launch it again uh, there would be a certain amount of refurbishment and potentially specifically on the engine bell itself they were pretty confident that the main tanks and core of the stage would be fine, but that the engine bell itself might need significant refurbishment on future flights. They did uh, look into uh, using a parachute instead, but due to uh, the devilish nature of numbers, these numbers start getting exponential really, really quick, and the diameter of a parachute large enough to safely float the stage down would have been as wide as the Burj Khalifa is tall, Uh, so that idea was scrapped. Overall, this was something that the the actual NASA panels uh, responsible for addressing uh, this were a little skeptical about. They definitely uh, said that reusing the vehicle uh, would not be in the first stage of its development, that if they were to go ahead and build it, they would first focus on making a functional flying vehicle that met its goals, both in terms of cost and capacity, and that reuse uh, would be added into it in like a uh, sea dragon block two type of deal in our alternate spacex universe <laughs> one thing uh when reading up on this ben mentioned to me the idea of why didn't they look into propulsive reuse the idea or propulsive landing for reuse because the idea isn't new the, uh, the idea is as old as the idea of engines but there are a couple specific reasons first of all the mass fraction of the vehicle itself because it is a very thick solid steel vehicle is much, much worse than other propulsive landing vehicles currently. That is to say, the percentage of the vehicle that is fuel and therefore goes away once you have to land is a much smaller percentage of the vehicle than, uh, say, something that is made for landing, like the first stage of a Falcon 9. Therefore, you need a much, much larger amount of thrust in order to make that landing hypothetically work. Secondly, the gimbling on the single main engine, while it did have that ability, Uh, was fairly limited they did not give uh, specific numbers in the design document which i thought was a little strange but if you look at the detailed diagrams it doesn't look like the type of engine that lends itself to as much movement as you see with the with the merlin 1d and other engines built for this third A pressure-fed engine isn't necessarily great at throttling. Yes, you can, you know, turn the valves open and closed a little bit, but uh, the changes in chamber pressure, the changes in flow stability really don't agree with the design of the engine overall. And the fact that they only have a single engine, it's not as though they can just shut off half the engines and uh, land on partial And then the last and I think main reason why they never really looked into it is because I just don't feel like it goes with their philosophy for the entire vehicle. Uh, When we're talking about a big dumb booster, having something that can, you know, steer itself and then propulsively land itself uh, and do these things that have never been done before wasn't really what they were going for. And so if they did, uh, let's say in their alternate reality, they had an alternate reality where they made a really smart version of it that could be more propulsively reusable and all those extra things uh it would just it would be bfr and it would be closer to that but it just wasn't the the type of vehicle that they were looking to build
2: yeah i think i think that's the best answer and when i asked that question i knew that that was the answer but oh no but i, I think it's I wanna... important. i
3: i assume that that was a, a wink wink uh question but it is important because i think a lot of what is so ridiculous about this vehicle is good to look at through the lens of like how things have developed instead. And kind of on that note, I'd love to talk really quickly about why we don't have a Sea Dragon in this uh, slightly less exciting reality that we live in. Uh, first of all, we do have rockets that not only are really high capacity, but do completely uh, eclipse the Sea Dragon in terms of efficiency and flexibility. The Sea Dragon was not really built to be the type of rocket that can be uh, further developed and made smarter and better and uh, adapted to different types of missions. Uh, It really just was a large payload capacity that it could throw up there. But it wasn't really able to be a more uh, flexible vehicle uh, the way something like uh, Starship or New Glenn is looking to be. And then with that giant capacity, we don't really have anything that can be launched. I mentioned you could launch the entire mass of the ISS, To put it in different words, you could launch 169 James Webb Space Telescopes in one launch. Mm -hmm. We just don't have a concept for space vehicles that are this big, other than the ISS. And that is a really special case because it was built in so many pieces and isn't the type of thing that could have been launched in a single. So, yeah, we don't have the idea of things that are this large in mass, but also this dense that it can be launched in a single piece instead of um, assembled in orbit. The only idea would be interplanetary or deep space missions that take advantage and are kind of built with this type of launch capacity in mind but that's just the thing it's never really the launch vehicles that create a niche and then vehicle uh and then the payloads that then fill that niche it's usually the other way around where payloads and missions and ideas are proposed and then the the launch market comes in to fill mm. that void and make it happen so there just wasn't and still isn't room for a vehicle that doesn't have anything to launch
0: the whole problem is there's just no real good use case but yeah for something like an interplanetary mission i really would like to see this launch something like that just because Mm -hmm. you could have something like even better than you know say the bfr Mm -hmm. you could have more room and more capability you just need something to get it into orbit and this could do that and so i would kind of like to see somebody develop a massive spaceship. Mm-hmm. you know that basically just needs to be gotten off the earth and then here comes sea dragon that says hey we can do that for you that would be awesome absolutely
1: um, i think uh one thing that would be wild if you did have this would be space telescopes mm-hmm. right? rather mm-hmm, than yeah. have to have some kind of foldable mirrors type thing you're doing with JWST just go and send a 10 meter mirror directly into space yeah
3: that's exactly if we lived in a world where space flight and you know space technology was so core to our society that we had Lots of people proposing and funding large projects like that, we would have Sea Dragon, because then we would have the need to launch things like that on a regular basis. And I, I for one, definitely hope that at some point we get to the point where we are launching things that uh, I would love to see a, a 10 meter diameter space telescope launch. But I think we first have to get to the point of proposing and building and funding those things. And then the new Sea Dragon will rise to match that.
0: All right. Well, I think that about covers it. So thank you for that insight into Sea Dragon. And maybe one day we'll see one actually launch. Let's hope so. I kind of have my doubts, but I would like to see that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You've convinced me. Well, you've. You've persuaded me further that this is actually possible. It still seems (laughs) outlandish, or I guess you could say out to sea. Um, Oh, God. (laughs) Yeah, so thanks for coming back on the show, and uh, I suppose we'll have you on at some point again in the future. I would be delighted. So no upcoming spaceflight events this week, so we're just going to go ahead and sign off and de-orbit the show. We'd like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music.
1: We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen
2: or visit the orbitalmechanicscom support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources.
0: For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies.
1: You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit, where Orbital Podcasts. On both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com.
0: All right, that's it. So we will see you next week on orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody.
1: See ya.